0: Hey there, my name is Ushin Lunny, and this is Audio Matters, a weekly podcast on all things audio presented to you by Harman. Now, as a company with 75 years of history in live and touring production through brands like JBL, Martin Lighting, Soundcraft and more, Harman is deeply concerned about the impact of the pandemic on live music. In this week's episode, we'll examine the current state of music in cities. We'll look at how they can regenerate post-COVID-19 and we'll ask our expert guests to outline their visions for the future. This episode will explore exactly what keeps the cultural heartbeat of a city alive and discuss the importance of independent music venues and how a vibrant local creative scene is a strategic factor to deliver economic, social and cultural growth in cities. I am thrilled to be joined by two of the world leading advocates for independent venues and music as a cornerstone of our cities. These gentlemen have been campaigning to save the musical heart of cities for many years before the current pandemic. So I'm delighted that they can join us to discuss the current crisis, planning beyond the pandemic and building a better future for the performing arts. Welcome to the podcast, Shane Shapiro, founder and group CEO at Sound Diplomacy, and Reverend Moose, managing partner, co-founder at Marauder, and the executive director and co-founder at Neva, the National Independent Venue Association, and an actual reverend. Welcome to the podcast, guys.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us.
0: Shane, I'd like to start with yourself. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. Why is music important to cities?
1: Music is so important in cities because music is literally the soundtrack to, all, to everything that we do. And music is our universal language. As I say, we all speak it. Um, but the problem is, is the way that our cities have been designed and the way that our cities are planned and governed and managed is not advantageous to really utilizing and taking advantage of the overall value that music in all its forms and functions can have in our cities. There's this cognitive dissonance that because music is ubiquitous, it's all around us all the time, that it's always going to be all around us all the time. And music is an ecosystem. Music is a supply chain and it relies on a number of different, um, aspects of, of city life, um, to function, be it, where houses are built, how roads are built, um, the different laws and, and plans that govern, um, you know, when things can stay open and the taxes are laid to them and so on and so forth. And yet music doesn't have a say in, in the, the way that these rules and regulations are, are created. So I, I see this as an incredible opportunity now to reorder the, the value uh, of music in communities um but we have a a huge task on our hands as as i'm sure moose will tell you
0: so moose i'd like to start with you with a big question why are cities important to music
2: well like shane said i mean two-thirds of the world's population are in cities or at least were before the pandemic started living in cities and um you know you they're 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 out there and they're doing stuff and they're creating art together and they're working together and they're starting businesses together and the live sector the music business overall uh you know is a kind of a group project in every possible way so where you have artists you're going to have venues and where you have I, uh, you know, managers, you're going to have record labels and everything kind of feeds on itself. Certainly, the bigger cities, the hubs, if you will, uh, the Berlins and Londons and Nashville's and New York, et cetera, those are going to be places where you see uh, true scale of what is possible and all the different facets and some of the elements that we wouldn't necessarily think about on a daily basis, like, um, you know, licensing or publishing or. Um, you know, elements that uh, are, are, are more involved past the, um, the perceived just on the art level. But when you're talking about, you know, additional markets or, or, you know, especially secondary markets that are their own incubators for talent and have their own communities and their own cooperatives and, um, you know, people that would be creating their own networks locally, that is where you know some of the coolest art comes out of. You, you look at cities like Raleigh, for example, or Baltimore, and there's just such a, a strong community presence of people working together. And maybe a lot of them are the same people that are just doing more and more projects. But I think that gives a good opportunity to the next generation, whatever that ge- next generation might be. To be able to see it as a viable option for them to be able to do and create their own scene and their own business and their own network, and uh, and continue the cycle
0: of growth. Shane, could you explain the concept of a music city?
1: Um, sure. So every city has music because every city has people. If you've got people, you got music. And also, the word "city" is misleading. Um, the word "city" is 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 a definable term, um, and it's based on. Uh, on a set of regulations uh, and statutes that a city has to abide by. Um, In the UK, you have to have a cathedral, I think, to be a city. I define a music city as a city that takes music seriously in how it governs itself and how it understands Mm. itself. So that is thinking about the policies that impact music from education through to um, issues related to what we would call core infrastructure So music venues, recording studios, things like that. Um, And lots of things that we don't see but impact us every day, like environmental health policy or planning policy. And if music is considered uh, within those remits of policy, that there is a voice for music in the city in one way or another. And it includes both the amenity of music, the ability for people to enjoy it and to experience it, and the industrial mechanism, i.e. making money out of it, that is how we would define a music city. And and in that definition, there aren't that many music cities in the world um, compared to cities that celebrate music. Celebrating music is, is important and it's something that we all need to be doing, but it doesn't mean that you are deliberately and intentionally utilizing the holistic power that music can have on making a place better. Hopefully that wasn't overly academic description of Music City. It's just because you slap a brand on it doesn't mean you're a Music City. In in my a, a Music Policy City maybe is the best way to to put it. Every city is a Music City. Not every city is a Music Policy City.
2: So are you basically saying that Music City is a term kind of like organic produce? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't.
1: <laughs> but it's kind of a vibe. <laughs> it's a vibe. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, think, I think, you know, R- Raleigh and Baltimore are amazing communities in terms of the art and culture that's been created. And you can, there's so many other cities that are like that. You know, a lot of music, especially music from 20 years ago, even 15, 10 years ago, developed organically. Um, and a lot of the music that's being developed organically in communities now is, I would say, lacking any recognition from public policy because the way that people consume music now compared to the people that are making decisions often in city halls and city councils are, are very different. Music has an incredible power in cities to influence policy in a positive way because music, you know, music is blind. Music uh, music works for everybody. And especially at a time when we're trying to, we're, we need to work harder to bring communities together and create equitable policies to support everybody um, music is this fantastic tool. And a city that understands that is a city, I believe, that's going to recover quicker and in a, a simply better way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. Uh, and Moost, from your perspective as a co-founder at Neva, talk to us a bit about the role of independent grassroots venues in the Music City ecosystem.
2: The very nature of the word independent means that there's probably locally owned or, um, operated and that it's run by people in the community, uh, more often than not. And these are going to be people that have a vested interest in what the community is doing and how to serve that community. So they're the ones that are going to open their doors for fundraisers. They're, they're going to be the ones that open their doors when, um, there's, uh, you know, political, uh, social justice movements, uh, elements of that sort—they're the ones that are going to take a chance on local talent and collaborate with local businesses and work together. And so, when you talk about the the value of being independent, you're talking about the value of local commerce, and you're talking about the value of community service and all of those elements that live in those, those different worlds. It's not just about arts and entertainment. It's not just about taxes being paid. Uh, it's, just, it's not just about the um, economic impact that, that venues uh, carry. And there was a study, by the way, shown that for every $1 that is spent on a ticket, it generates $12 in local economic activity so that's you know hotels and that's restaurants and that's bars and parking decks and any other number of different ways that we all know when you go out for a night on the town i uh, you're going to spend more than whatever the cost of the ticket is and that's just you know how how you plan your evenings and you know the difference between i think the independent sector and those that are being operated from afar uh, from spreadsheets, from, um, you know, stockholders is that their responsibility is to the local communities, uh, the, the independence responsibilities are to the local communities. So, you know, it's not a matter of keeping an eye on, uh, fluctuating stock prices or just trying to reconcile a spreadsheet. It's a matter of, um, you know, how do I make this work? How do I open up my doors? How do I keep the lights on? How do I how do I serve the people that have supported the business for so long?
0: Yeah.
1: My job every day in some ways is to try to explain what Moose just said in the language that the person I'm speaking to will understand it. And um, in many places, not just in America, but in many places that simply comes down to money. And a lot of these businesses are you know, a lot of these businesses, these businesses are viable businesses. Of course they are. But, um, if you, if you judge the value of land based on the most valuable use that you can have on that land, then anything to do with culture is never going to win because the most valuable thing that you can do is build homes. And that's the economically valuable thing. Mm. I think that we don't just need places to live. We need places to live for and what's in venues are, are so much more important than just the artists that are on stage. You know, most people, their first job is within the evening and nighttime economy. Mine was, I'm sure yours were yeah. Um, either behind a bar or doing the door or whatever it was may not have been at a music venue, but it was at a, at a, at an evening or nighttime economy establishment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also businesses that are threatened and the interpersonal skills the the you know from basic maths and accounting to how to treat people to conflict resolution all of these things are incubated in venues and and we always say what 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 if we just called a venue an innovation hub right or a venue an incubator would we be fighting the same fight if we won the language argument in a different way and and I always try to explain that the music is what opens the door and it's obviously incredibly important, but there's so much more to why independent venues are important to communities than just the, the content on stage. But nothing would exist without the content on stage.
2: I, th- I think that's why, you know, the idea that we could lose the majority of independent venues as a result of the pandemic is so devastating. Because, you know, the reality is is you're not going to lose live music. You're going to lose your options as to where you can uh, go to be part of live music. And uh, you know, especially when you're talking about losing the independent sector, um, those options ha- are are controlled by fewer and fewer people and fewer and fewer organizations. Yeah. Um, and we have, you know, as Neva, we have, uh, you know, a couple thousand members. In the worst time in this business sector's history, all working together, uh, certainly to be able to preserve their own individual businesses, but in addition to that, they're preserving the options of choice and um, competitive pricing, fair ticketing practices, and all these other elements that are intertwined with it. Being a musician is a really tough job to get into, and nobody's going to sing any praises about how fair or equitable the music industry is in any manner. And touring is probably the hardest thing a musician can do. So if you lose those options of choice in the process of a pandemic that just has certainly from an American side, just gone completely out of control, then the repercussions of that are going to be more devastating than just the closure of the venues.
1: Yeah. We should think about independent venues as community centers, because that's what they are. They're centers of their community. And where would we be if we didn't have a place to congregate? You know, as human, we're social species. And I think that we, we have to recognize the, yeah, as you say, the holistic social impact that these spaces have on our communities, just by the, you know, the ability to, to congregate and be surprised and be introduced to new things. It's so intrinsically important to everything that, that makes us who we are as um, kind, compassionate people.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting point that you make about the choice of language. And I mean, Shane, particularly with your work at Sound Diplomacy, you're fighting a very unique battle. In the UK, for example, we're reading headlines recently about the Royal Albert Hall being put on a menu for property speculators because, as you say, it's a very valuable piece of real estate. How does Sound Diplomacy fight this battle to educate people about the holistic values of the music and the music city economy.
1: So the first thing is the way that we think is not the way that everybody thinks, right? So I have recognized in my life that I the way that I think politically, socially, economically is in the minority in most places in the world and I've recognized that. And that we as a music business are wholly misunderstood. So the way that most people experience music as a transaction is immediate. It's live music or listening to it on Spotify. The way that people make money out of music is is wholly misunderstood. So what we try to do is we work really, really hard to understand the language in which we're speaking in. And we try to tailor that language as best we possibly can to try to create the change that we want. So in sometimes it's focusing on the economy and sometimes it's focusing on health and well-being mm. and i've also kind of given up on immediate gratification i'm in this for the process i'm not in this for the reward because there is no reward even when we we had some great news in the uk of a of a relief package which is incredibly welcome and appreciated yeah but it's just the beginning um, and it's going to disappoint a lot of people as well um, unfortunately because the money's not going to get to everybody who needs it yeah, It's all part of this whole process is that there's no end game in fighting for music. Once you choose to incorporate music and in policy, you choose to incorporate music and in policy. Yeah. Um, and and we use a lot of analogies. Uh, so, you know, the one I use a lot is I liken music to clean water and that clean water is only important when you don't have it. Yeah. Right. So I believe that and I really got I hope we don't get it to this point in the US, but it's, it's the Joni Mitchell song, it's true. <laughs> and unfortunately, if we don't see music as a vital element of our infrastructure and ecosystem, or we don't put two and two together to recognize that if you lose 90% of your independent venues, you lose a lot more than just the brick and mortar uh, of those spaces. It may take a couple newsworthy things to happen before people recognize that things need to change. So we try really hard to speak the language of the person that we're speaking to.
0: Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Well, thanks to both of you for fighting the good fight. Moose, talk to us a bit about you know this fight to save the independent venues, these community hubs of our our cultural heartbeat of the cities. What kind of things does Niva get involved in?
2: Only a few months ago, we didn't even have representation, and uh, we formed specifically. To be able to help present a unified voice that is able to carry uh, the the need for support uh, to Congress and to be able to help get national protection and funding on behalf of the uh, independent venues and promoters. And the fact that this hasn't happened before wasn't necessarily a reflection of the lack of need. I think it was just more uh, reflective of the fact that everybody has been busy doing a million different things and keeping their businesses running. So that we are all unifying now, and that we are all coming together, and in such numbers, Uh, and it really should show the importance of what it is that we're fighting for, and the dire nature of it, and the fact that you know ninety percent of the independent venues and promoters in the U.S. and this number is pretty standard across every region or country that we we've we've seen research from. Ninety percent will not make it through six months without some type of financial support from outside sources. It just is impossible. And when you think of it in in those terms, you're looking at an extinction-level event that affects not just the local economy, which is certainly uh, a very fair and valid argument, and it really does. It really does affect the local economy, and it affects the business owners, and all the things that I think we see from a, a street-level perspective But it also affects every single facet of the music industry. You're having more decisions made by fewer companies. That's on the touring level, and then that affects the promotion level, and then that affects what people would end up hearing on the radio or on playlists and all these different things that are intertwined with each other uh, when you have fewer gatekeepers being able to make such important decisions. It affects the ticket prices. It affects where you can buy your tickets. Um, you know, these decisions, just the fact that diversity would potentially be removed from the marketplace would have a devastating impact in many ways that we can't necessarily even imagine right now.
0: Aside from your work at Neva, what's the kind of work that you have been doing with Marauder?
2: My uh, my work with Marauder, the stuff that I work on all year, uh, so much of it is about creating pathways and developing programs from, uh, for people from all over the world, for artists, for professionals, for entire countries or music festivals or whatever, and trying to build their presence in North America. And our work running Independent Venue Week in the U.S. and our work with individual campaigns, it all ties on this healthy ecosystem within the country to be able to take chances and to be able to dig a bit deeper than just what the numbers in front of you might look like. When you're talking about creating an environment that not just supports artists, but supports the future artists, you have to be able to talk about things from an emerging perspective. And you have to have businesses that are willing to take chances on development, developmental um, programs. That program might be a musician. It might be a professional exploit. It could be a number of different things. But without that, that little bit of risk-taking, our ability to function as an industry is going to be stagnant, and it's going to be homogenized, and it's going to be, quite bluntly, uh, boring.
0: Yeah, nobody needs a boring music business. That would just be the icing on the 2020 cake, actually.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, we made these jokes in 2016 and we made these jokes in 2017 and here we are in 2020. So let's just hope we live to see next year. I think that at a bare minimum would be, uh, would be a nice goal to have.
0: There seems to be a mismatch between the scale of the creative industries and what they bring to society and the amount of money they bring to various governments. Uh, on one of the previous episodes of the Audio Matters podcast, we were having a discussion about the discrepancy between the profile of the fishing industry. In the UK. And this is like wheeled out by politicians all the time as being, you know, we have to save the fishing industry and we need to, you know, fight for this and fight for that and yada, yada. And the creative industries make more in three days than the fishing industry makes in a year. But the government is quite slow to come to the defense of the creative industries in the same way. It's not really seen as this politically attractive issue. To to get behind,
1: it's because the people responsible for that revenue tend not to vote for the government.
0: Just right. to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> yes. Everyone has their priorities. Um, every government is ideological in different ways. You know what's happening in the United States right now to me is a tragedy because it is a fixable problem, not just venues, obviously, but a, a number of challenges. Sitting here, sitting here in London, where we, you know, one thing that frustrates me a lot. Which kind of is based on what you just said, Oshin? Is this? I can't think of the right word, but I don't mean it. It's kind of this forced victimization of music, right? Where we have to plead for help. Sure. You know, we're on, we're on our knees, looking up with our hands up. And I always think, what would the world be like without music? Right. Yeah. Everything that music touches, we all watch Netflix every day. That's full of music. I do believe that the argument is being made, but when you know when something has historically been treated either uh, as an amenity, you know or as a gift, right? You know, up until a hundred years ago, most investment in culture was done by royalty investing in particular pieces of music and commissioning. You know, we have a very young history.
0: yeah.
1: ubiquity breeds cognitive dissonance in a way, right? Because something is so widely available, um, and music is everywhere. Uh, and, And we're speaking from kind of a very Western mentality. You know, music is even more prevalent in other parts of the world that have less infrastructure. When you think something is always available, then you think it's always available. I believe that we have an ecosystem that disassociates the creator from the created. When we listen to a song, we're just immersed in that moment of loving the song. We don't think about everything that went into that song.
0: Shane, talk to us a bit about what's been happening with the Let The Music Play campaign. That's been another very visible, impactful campaign to support venues.
1: Essentially, the the live music industry, mainly through a couple organizations, the Music Venue Trust, uh, the Concert Promoters Association, and the UK Music Live Music Group, which is a a committee within UK Music, um, which is like the UK Trade Association for the music industry came together uh, and similar initiative, I think, to save our stages, which I believe uh, was done in partnership with the Save Our Venues campaign that the Music Venue Trust. Did they got fifteen hundred artists to sign a letter to Secretary of State for Culture and our Chancellor of the Exchequer, the guy who holds the purse strings, um, and the music industry came together in a in a campaign to share that singular hashtag, Let the Music Play. And there was weeks, let alone months, of negotiation uh, behind the scenes with lots and lots of people um, that culminated in this relief package. But the relief package is not just music. It's all forms of art and culture. And every sector within the arts and culture, creative industries, was involved uh, in the negotiation. But Let the Music Play provided a very simple, singular uh, face for the music industry you know there's a lot of heroes in the UK I would say you know the people who run these organizations certainly that that led the fight from the music venues trust the nighttime industries association to UK music and lots of others some cities as well uh, got behind it Manchester yes and London yeah. both were were supportive of this as well as parts of London boroughs or you know this the the towns and cities that make up london there were there was years of of chipping away that led to this. The first proper music policy report around music venues that I was lucky enough to participate in was in 2015, 2015. So and that was in London around small and medium-sized music venues, which were termed grassroots music venues. And yes. And lots of stuff has happened since then um, from uh the creation of uh London's nighttime czar, one exists in Manchester now to Lots of changes in planning law. One of the biggest wins of this of this campaign or this or this narrative over time is that the planning laws in the UK are being relaxed to spur building of houses because we need houses. But the problem is when you do that, you can convert office uses to residential without asking for planning permission. And the government a couple of days ago reaffirmed the agent of change principle, which says that you can't do that for music venues, theaters, comedy clubs, and creative spaces, and that any change of use next to one of those will still have to go through permission and, and planning consent. That is um, an incredible win for us in the UK because we were worried that this need to build would unintentionally uh, mean that, you know, venues that weren't able to open could then be bought and converted to housing. Yeah, And then there's, you know, there's, I could go on, there's heroes in a lot of countries that have worked really hard, uh, for relief funding. Um, uh, you know, especially in, in New Zealand and, and Australia and France and Germany across the Nordics and in Canada, um, in Colombia. there's been support for music. And I think we all have to, I feel like we all have to now turn our eye to the U S and do everything that we possibly can to support Moose and to support the other, music lobbies in the US to ensure that the US government recognizes that supporting independent music venues and the music ecosystem as a whole is purely good investment. It's just good for business. Mm. It's like when you tell a company that diversifying is actually going to make you money because it's good for business. Yes. It's not the right thing to do. It's the profitable thing to do. (laughs) And I believe that supporting the music ecosystem and I am going to do everything that I can to support moose and everybody working to fight for music venues in the music ecosystem in the u.s because to be honest that's that that's where the real issue is right now as as well as in countries that have never had any um music ecosystems or infrastructures i would say 35 to 40 percent of all countries in the world do not have functioning collection societies that is an issue yeah um they sometimes they're collection societies in name only um, and I'm, I'm not going to name names in that one. Uh, and no. <laughs> there are some parts of the world where, um, where you're, you know, you're not even allowed to register your work uh, due to the political issues in in those countries. Palestine being one, it's very, very difficult to register your work if you're a Palestinian artist. Damn. Let alone the majority of countries in the develop developing kind of second and third tier. Economic countries have no cultural office, have no music office, have no recognition of music as an economy um, in and of itself. I spend a lot of time just convincing people that music is an economy, I promise. So I see it as a different way. I think that on one side, we need to be ensuring that the United States doesn't uh, self destruct. Um, But (laughs) at the same time, we have this great opportunity globally to position music in our cities primarily, as the key cog of recovery, music and culture. And it's a unique opportunity, you know, it, it comes through crisis, but it's something that, that we can grasp and that I believe we can collectively utilize. I think it will take the music industry uh, to come together more uh, and to um, provide simpler explanations to how we work as an industry so that everyone recognizes that everyone who works in the industry, especially artists, um, are valid and valued and deserve the same rights as any other worker. Yeah. I was on a call today talking about the gig economy and I'm like, do you know where that word came from? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, like it's you. it's, you know, so we are, you know, we, we have so much to teach the rest of the world about how we can create equitable, sustainable change.
2: Well, our first argument is exactly what Shane was just saying, which is trying to convey what the importance is past what the perceived value is, because the perceived value of most of the nightlife economy is topical. right? Uh, and the financial value is insane. You know, like the, I think it was Polestar that said there's almost nine million, nine billion dollars. Uh, of of a loss in ticket sales alone expected if uh concerts don't return in, in 2020 yeah nine billion dollars uh when you think about the um the stimulus packages that are being sent out in different sectors how do you make up for that where does that money go right like it just it doesn't just go into a hole in the ground it gets spent and paid out to other people and other businesses and staff and touring artists and security guards and taxes etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think that the struggle that we've had from the very beginning and this led into the creation of, of neva overall was the business model doesn't necessarily make sense and the impact doesn't make sense to people that don't work within it and so they don't see how related everything is and they also don't see where the costs are coming from. So in the States, some of the early programs like the payroll protection plan or program, whatever it's called PPP, that was catered towards being able to keep staff on hand. Well, what are you going to have a staff do if there's literally no work? It's not like there's a takeaway service for most of these places. Some certainly have kitchens, but uh, most don't. And then you're also looking at the uh, ratio of what payroll cost might be versus what mortgage might be or taxes might be or rent or uh, insurance costs or all the other things that are tied into running a business that is a large open space in the middle of a city with all of the expenses that go with having a large open space in the middle of a city, which is generally a defining factor for many of our members. Yeah. And uh, so we had to come up with a way to tell our representatives that though we're grateful for the programs that exist, they've left us out and they have completely left us out. And there's no foretelling when there will be a return to normalcy or when we'll be able to open at a 100% capacity. Or when the different interlocking touring markets will be able to actually work again together, and um, you know the U.S. obviously is, uh, is is going through its own struggles right now as far as what to open, what not to open, and all the political reasons that somehow got involved into those decisions. But you know we can't plan the recovery for our sector until we have full recovery. Twenty five percent capacity is not the ability to actually operate a business, especially when you take into the fact that there's more costs involved with extra staff, PPE, etc. And then you're talking about having to continue to do ticket refunds as this is all happening and shows are being officially canceled. So for the independent venues, it's actually a negative uh, revenue generating business right now. And it doesn't make financial sense to open at partial capacity for most of our members. Um, you know, We're certainly coming up with creative solutions to do whatever is possible to get something coming through the door. Those with kitchens have, have been trying to use them. At least the numbers that I've heard have been largely unsustainable and, quite frankly, pretty brutal. Uh, people have done GoFundMes largely for their staff to be able to keep their staff uh, paid through this and that's been great to see. We've seen people yeah. doing limited edition merch, which has obviously generated some revenue, we've, and, but, but it's never enough, right? Like it's not going to be enough to get to the next day. And then it's, um, yeah. you know, in, in, in some ways, it's it's great to be able to see so many people being able to put that entrepreneurial spirit to work and try to come up with solutions, but these aren't reasonable solutions. And we really do genuinely need government support financial support from the government and it should come from the government you know the government is is what has mandated that these venues and these businesses are not able to 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 function and yes. so it, it, that responsibility should be put onto the government to be able to make it so they can be whole at the end of this yes some of these some of these places are like you know it's not just a matter of saying okay it didn't work out close up shop People are losing their homes over this people people are not able to support their families we have health care that is intertwined with our with our employment here in the states so you have entire families entire communities that are going without health insurance now because their employer is not able to continue like there are really serious repercussions to this and it, it it can largely be addressed uh by congress being able to pass legislation that helps secure financial support for the independent sector.
1: I I think as well. There's there's even more positivity to come. One of the things that we are recognizing is there's a lot of money in our business that's not making it to the people who need it. Mm. Um, you know, there's what is it? An estimated two hundred and fifty million dollars in the U.S. sitting in a a black box because they don't know where to uh, where to give the rights, um, to. at the same time, there's, you know, there's a congr- uh, a concurrent campaign in the U S, um, to change the way that AM and FM radio pays for music. This concept of value is changing. And I think that's a really positive thing, but it all comes down to this concept of an ecosystem. Yes. While people listen to music thinking they're on an Island music is not an Island. It's you know, musicians are taxpayers like anyone else. They eat and drink and sleep and, and you know, like everybody else. <laughs> um, and their jobs are as valued as everybody uh, should be as valued as everybody else, let alone the amount of skills that get incubated in live music or in recorded music. And trust me, most, the vast majority of people have no idea what a sound engineer actually does. Like literally, what does it, you know, like, How does it physically work? Few people understand it. And, and peeling back the onion, so to speak, or the curtain or the orange or whatever, (laughs) to demonstrate the amount of skill, the amount of um, transferable skill as well, where you especially you're seeing that people who um, put on festivals, you know, built temporary hospitals. Like, Amazing. There's this great story in Australia of a stage production company that turned to making furniture, and now they're making way more money out of furniture uh, than they did <laughs> out of building stages. Um, but it's it's. I, I agree with Musneta. I'm on the argument is getting easier to win hearts and minds, and now we're starting to have the wallet based argument, right? And yes. in in the U.S the hearts and minds argument um, was very personal. It wasn't a community-based argument. And that was made worse by, you know, a history of certain genres of music being supported while others are criminalized. Yeah. And that comes down to, obviously, structural racism and inequity and all sorts of other things that need to be corrected. Mm. And music is this great tool to make everything better. And I think people recognize the emotional loss. Um, and I think through Neva's work and and others, I think that that economic loss argument is starting to get through. Yeah, Um, I'm as hopeful as Moose. I think that something will happen. As we say, the the shaming economy is getting bigger and bigger.
0: You have the mother of all battles ahead, but also the mother of all opportunities. But as you kind of mentioned there, Shane, this is so much more than the financial arguments. There's been a huge impact uh, in terms of music and the way it's appreciated during the pandemic. In a research study just conducted by Harman, eight out of 10 people said they couldn't live in a world without music. And uh, I, for one, was surprised the figure is so small. Who are those two people?
2: I hope I hope they don't vote.
0: <laughs> well said, yes. <laughs> and um, 58% of people said that music is their go-to mechanism coping throughout the pandemic. So music has had another hugely important role during the lockdown, bringing people together, helping uh, helping with mental health and feelings of connection and well-being. How do we begin to put a value and to communicate the value of these softer benefits in a way that helps people realise its importance to us collectively?
1: Well, you, you can calculate it. So first off, you can put numbers to it. We do it all the time um, right. in the cities that we work in. Um, the social impact. Um, two is we need to we need to involve far more non-music people in this. The more people outside of our sector advocating for our sector or for independent venues, um, the stronger the independent venue lobby or any music lobby will get. Um, You know, you need hospitals advocating for music because if you prescribe music, then you're saving money on prescribing drugs, which I guess may be different in the U.S. where it's a different model, the healthcare system. But in the UK...
2: You, you mean you guys get prescribed music for free, too? This is
1: just absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. I am so... No, I You know, I... But there's, there's, there's been a, a model in the UK of um, prescribing joining a choir for depression, for example, Seriously? rather than prescribing uh, drugs. Um, that's just one example.
2: We, we, we have that, too, in the US, but it's called just go figure it out. Yeah, go figure
1: out. You know, I'm always, and, and there's other, um, you know, again, try exercising without music. Good luck with that. Um, yes, a lot of, you know, the, the license and, you know, the, all of these types of things, like if we had soul cycle, for example, advocating for independent venues, because they should be, um, if we had, I just picked them at random, I'm not trying to pick on them, but if we had, um if we had, you know, hospital trusts or, or large medical cardinal health should be advocating for music or insurance companies, or maybe I'm, you know, I'm naive cause I probably am, but that's, <laughs> that's how I think we raise the value of music is we, we widen the tent and, mm. oh, and, and in, we, you know, music is a very inward facing business. You know, we, Prioritize our internal concept of value—the value of music to us internally as an industry—and we unintentionally ignore the external value, the holistic value of music to society. The fact that eight out of ten of Harman's customers um, can't live without music, and the other two, just you know, I have no interest in that. Um,
0: but it's—I don't—I don't think they're Harman customers. I
2: think they just filled out like the—they uh, didn't complete the form, like they started it, and got distracted, <laughs> or something. That's just how I'm going to have to believe this. It makes no sense.
0: It's, it's difficult to process.
1: There's this whole canon of organizations and sectors that uh, encircle music in one way or another. Tourism boards, economic development corporations, chambers of commerce, business improvement districts, all sorts. Um, mm. A lot of them have uh, support systems and regulations and you know, positive things for communities that have next to no impact or engagement with music other than putting music on a promotional video or hiring a band to play a reception or asking a band to play a reception. It's, it's these organizations. And I, you know, we work really hard to try to get them to understand the value. And if we have wider economic tourism, social care, uh, industry lobbies, um, stepping up and saying, listen, if independent music if independent music venues go away, our businesses are going to be affected. Because it's true. Yes. I'm going to put my hand up and say that us as a business, we need to do better at this. You know? Moose has heard me say this before. Well, I
2: think that's something that we're really fighting hard to be able to help define over here. And, you know, the interconnected relationships of all the different uh, industries, not just in the music industry, but in the neighborhoods as well, I think that's where the, uh, the the independent and the locally owned businesses are very well aware of it. And we have members and venues that are being called now that some cities are able to reopen. They're being called by their neighbors and they're like, hey, when are you planning on reopening? We don't have any traffic. And they're being stunned that the answer is not until there's a vaccine or not in the foreseeable future, or probably not this year, because it is going to put out of business business their their neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, un- it's unfortunate, but uh, we do have a lot of joint support for uh, the, the, the bills that we're trying to get passed and the support that we're trying to secure from the government. Certainly, um, I, I, w- I would say the music industry as a whole has been supportive of the creation of Neva and what we're trying to build out. There have been many already existing trade organizations that have really, really stepped up to help us. And help us get connected and in D.C. uh, conversations, and have supported us with by co-signing our asks to Congress as well. Yeah, and we're seeing that come through on on a national and and an international level. And we're talking with music venue trust and um, you know some uh, Canadian Live Music Association and all these different organizations from around the globe that have either secured some type of funding or have already been in existence in the past. So there's, look, there's a lot of, there's a lot that can be done from here. Um, you know, we need to get through this. That's our, our, our priority right now. And that is the number one priority. Yeah. But I do feel like on the other side of this, it will be easier to have the conversations that tell people, look at the value we bring to the table because we're doing that right now out of desperation Mm. and, and nobody wants to be. Nobody wants to wake up and realize. Like I, I, I know it sounds dramatic. The fact that ninety percent of independent venues and promoters will be completely and permanently out of business oh, yeah. if we can't get funding. Uh, in in the you know they, they will be out of business in the first six months completely, ninety percent. But like that doesn't mean that the other ten percent are going to continue to exist. It just means they have longer than six months. Yeah. There has to be. A, a reckoning that is done from a congressional level that says that this sector of the industry, this sector of the economy, this is important to me. I grew up going to shows there. My children go to events there all the time. Yes. They did a fundraiser for my reelection. Whatever the case might be, there has to be that reckoning that that says we have to save our stages. It has to happen. Yeah, because the world on the other side of this is non-competitive, and it's not local, and it's not going to support emerging or new talent. It is going to have hiring practices that are decided by afar. It is going to have different tax obligations uh, than than locally owned businesses. Yeah, we're going to see a horrible fallout. If we cannot get the support that we need yeah, and on a global level, on a global level, if the American independent sector is not able to help support what is being done from, from around the world, considering how much of the world's music economy is based off of the American market to begin with, this will not just affect the American, um, you know, economy, this will be a worldwide, uh, event that is going to last for years and years and years.
0: Yes, it it is the most important battle I think the music industry has faced. Uh, I mean, staying with you, Moose, do you think live music has a role in actually gluing us together as a civilization?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, 100%. You know, like, come on, how many people have that one moment where they just, you know, they've closed their eyes in a room full of people and they've gotten lost in song and their hands are in the air and they're sweating through their clothes and they're singing along, you know, to, to, and and they're with their friends and they're, you know, they're just, it's there. Nothing else exists in that moment, but that pure joy of what's happening or that misery of what's being sung about (laughs) on stage or, you know, whatever it is, it's like, of course, like that's, that's the very nature of what we do. That's the whole effect of music. That's why we're so stunned that two out of 10 people, uh,
0: yes.
2: you know, would somehow, uh, I don't know, maybe they prefer chocolate over music. I don't know what that, that, that is. It's just wrong. But I, I know that it's an elemental reaction, right? Like we mm. pets react to music. We as humans react to music. Prenatal children react to music. So so of course like you know the live the live aspect of it you know the only the only people that don't like live music are your downstairs neighbors
1: that's it
0: <laughs> yeah it's so true
1: <laughs> as a canadian who lives in the uk but whose business is primarily in the us i'm speechless at the lack of understanding on behalf of some people of how important this issue is and how this issue is a domino is that if 90% of venues close, 90% of independent businesses on main streets and on in town and city centers, that will impact that $12 that's spent in addition to the ticket up and down the country. That's less meals, that's less Ubers, that's so on and so forth. It boggles my mind. But yet I'm incredibly hopeful because you know, it's a wonderfully inventive and unique and incredible place that I believe has the capacity to fix, fix this problem.
0: The fight of our lives is ahead for all of the music industry. A city without a musical heart is a cold, empty place and it's poorer in every respect. Uh, Thank you so much, Shane and Reverend Moose for joining us on the Audio Matters podcast to discuss how to save the musical heart of cities, a hugely important mission, which I hope all of the listeners will take to heart and support however you can. Now, we will be linking to the websites of the National Independent Venue Association and Sound Diplomacy in the show notes. So please do reach out to them, get involved, support them and spread the word. Become a champion for music and independent venues in your city. Now, the Harman survey I mentioned earlier is called The Power of Music and it's also linked in our show notes. And I'd like to wrap up this show with a quote from the survey from Dave Rogers, the president of Lifestyle Audio at Harman. And I think it's a beautiful homage to the power and impact of music in all of our lives. Dave says... Music's profound and universal benefits have been demonstrated time and time again. We hold a deep belief in the power of music to inspire and enhance our moods. We are dedicated to helping people get the most out of their listening moments and grateful for the emotional and physical benefits that music delivers. Can I get an amen?
2: Amen. Amen. And also, I just want to say thank, thank you, uh, thank you, certainly for 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 hosting this oyster, and 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 also thank you to Harmon for being able to help give voice uh, to this as well. It's really important that that to have support from um from from companies like you. So thank you.
1: Yeah, and and to those listening, please vote and please write to your elected representatives uh, to ensure that they're part of saving our stages.
0: Yeah, uh, my turn to give you both an name there. Thank you. <laughs> So listeners, if you enjoyed this discussion, don't forget to subscribe to the Audio Matters podcast using your favourite podcast app and do check out the brilliant title playlist put together by our guests every episode with a few selections from myself as well. And this is all linked in the show notes. So the Audio Matters podcast team are embarking on our summer vacations and staycations, but we'll be back with another season of fascinating topics and legendary audio guests for season two, which drops in September. So wherever you are listening, whatever you're doing, have a great summer. And thank you so much for joining us on the Audio Matters podcast presented to you by Harman. See you again in September.